Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, we're talking about Peg and we'll be finding out how there was much more to her story than the version studied at school for so long. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com or your ideas for other shows and we'd love to hear from you. Tonight's show is on Peg Sayers. A new exhibition at the Museum of Literature Ireland in Dublin celebrates the life and work of Peg, praising her exceptional mastery of language, her vivid imagination and her irrepressible creative urge. Born in 1873, Peg's book, her autobiography, was first published in 1936 and was on the Irish school curriculum until 1995. However, this new exhibition suggests that the book does not give a full picture of Peg, the greatest storyteller in a community of great storytellers. And so in tonight's show, we're going to tell her story. And to do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Katie Mishler is part of the curatorial team for the PEG exhibition at the Museum of Literature Ireland and is a Government of Ireland Enterprise Partnership Postdoctoral Fellow and is also connected with the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. Lorcan O'Caneda is the manager of the Blasket Centre, uh, which is part of the OPW National Historic Properties. And Dr. Christor McCarthig is the director of the National Folklore Collection at UCD. Well, you're all very welcome. Uh, Katie, we might begin with you and a question maybe about the significance of Peg. Why is she so significant? Why is there an exhibition devoted to her at the Museum of Literature Ireland in Dublin? And uh, why does she deserve this, I suppose, uh, new look at her life and her work? Uh, Yes, that's a great question. And it's one I'm very happy to answer. So, At Molly Museum of Literature Ireland, we are seeking to rehabilitate Peg's reputation. Um, She's been quite a maligned figure, I believe, um, critically, as well as in terms of her inclusion in the national curriculum. She's been a site of a lot of ridicule, like schoolyard ridicule, I believe. And primarily that has to do with her autobiography, Peg, for which she is primarily known. But Actually, I think that it's kind of a two-pronged approach we're trying to take. One, we're trying to change people's perceptions of Peg the Autobiography. Um, It's not all doom and gloom. There's also a lot of joy, a lot of laughter, a lot of mischief and fun that happens. Uh, She's a wonderful storyteller, and she did have an incredibly difficult life. Living on the Blaskets was not uh, an easy place to live. And, um, you know, she does talk about the loss of her children. She does talk about her children going away to America. There is a lot of um, death and deprivation, but there's also a lot of joy and fun and mischief, as I said. Um, We also want to recognize that Peg is more than just her autobiography. She was also, as you said, the queen of Irish storytellers. Her contributions to the Irish Folklore Commission, which is now known as the National Folklore Collection, 
question, which um, Christor will talk about in more depth, is uh, phenomenal. Um, she had a repertoire of over 375 stories. They included all sorts of stories. She had some tales from the uh, different cycles and epics. She had some supernatural tales. She had some international folk tales uh, like Cinderella. She had several versions of that were transmitted mouth to mouth all over the world. Um, she also was a phenomenal tradition bearer. So she was somebody who had been a great informant about the culture and the life on the Blasket Islands. Um, and also as a person, she was um quite a persona. She was a great flirt. She was great fun. She was a very beautiful woman. Um, she had, you know, violet eyes and was known as a great beauty when she was growing up. So when we think of Peg, you know, you sort of see the solemn picture of her by the hearth as an old woman. She's not smiling. That doesn't really do justice to her, even as a person who was somebody who, who was full of great warmth and great laughter as well. And at Molly, what we're trying to do with this exhibition is we're trying to change people's perceptions of Peg. So I can tell from your accent that perhaps you're someone who didn't uh, study Peg at school then. And do you think coming to it fresh then, you're able to, to take on Peg without any of the baggage, any of the prejudice? You know, you mentioned uh, the playground kind of insults about Peg and the life and the doom and the gloom that you're able to take it uh, with with fresh eyes. Oh, absolutely. I do think so. I think I'm coming from a unique perception where my um, my doctoral studies focused on Irish literary studies. And I had known Peg, you know, as kind of a figure of mockery and ridicule. Um, there's some memes of her that I had seen on the internet making fun of her. And I understood the legacy of Peg. But when I came to it, um, I, I did read it in English um, for the first time. I do think I was able to see it as a literary work and to appreciate um, not only her skill as a storyteller, um, the fact that she wasn't a traditional writer and that she actually dictated Peg to her son, Michal, who then wrote it down because she couldn't read or write in Irish as well. Um, but the skills of her craft are something I could appreciate. And um, I also think perhaps having been a bit older, um, I can't imagine 15-year-olds maybe picking up on some of the nuances of the text. Um, I think it would be probably wanting to focus more on like this doom and gloom narrative. I can see how that would be something that a lot of students of Irish would probably be focusing on. I will say, though, that reading Peg and working on this exhibition, I think Peg has come full circle because now I actually want to learn Irish so I can read Peg in Irish. So after generations of school children being forced to learn Irish and forced to read Peg in Irish, now we're at a point where people are actually wanting to learn Irish so they can read Peg in Irish. Brilliant. Christor, it is fascinating. You know, the Gaelic scholar Robin Flower uh, describes Peg as a natural orator. And we see all this incredible praise for her as a storyteller, as this uh, transmitter of, of culture and knowledge and all of this. And these were dimensions and parts of the Peg story that were ignored for far too long. Yes. Uh, I mean, as Katie has, has said very clearly, her book, her autobiography, was put on the Leaving Cert course. Um, and I think many students, the majority of students perhaps, found it difficult to relate to her story. To some degree, there's uh, an urban-rural divide there at work. You know, the difficulty of people living brought up in, a, in an urban environment, understanding or grasping 
what it was like to live on, on an island. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. But clearly, her, her rhetorical skills were uh, unmatched. And in, within, in, certainly in Ireland, I think it is fair to say that she ranks as one of the top storytellers recorded by the Folklore Commission. Uh, there are others. Eamon Abourke in, in Connemara, in Karna, for instance, a remarkable storyteller. Uh, and there are others. Anna Nicol Lewin in, in the Bluestack Mountains, the Croaks, in Donegal. There's a number of them, but she stands head and shoulders simply for the, the breadth of her repertoire, which is extraordinary. She she had all of these international tales, you know, we, 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 you know, the tales such as the Dragon Slayer, you know, the clever peasant girl, uh, Cinderella. Uh, many of them would be familiar to people. Uh, and she also had an awful lot of local legends um, and legends connected with the supernatural. So a vast repertoire of stories. Uh, and on top of that, Joseph O'Dolig, uh, Joe Daly, a uh, uh, Dun Queen man, a neighbour of hers, uh, recorded her uh, intensively from 1942 when she moved from the island to the mainland, as they say, in, in, in those parts. And he wrote down uh, something in the region of 5,000 pages of traditions and customs and tales and legends from her. So uh, a remarkable output. And I think she needs to be understood in terms of her abilities as a storyteller. But a, you know, a master of oral literature, and I think it's lovely to see that Molly took the decision to develop an exhibition on her because, in terms of literature, she certainly ranks alongside other, uh, you know, the equivalent uh, great writers in Ireland. That's my own uh, view. And Chris Story, do you think that maybe there is a prejudice against her because it was a an oral literature rather than a, a one that she was writing down herself, and that maybe there was a a prejudice against it because of that? Well, yeah, her strength was as a storyteller, and, and that even comes through in her writing, although it's more carefully uh, uh, edited, uh, uh, presented. I, I, I don't think it really conveys or conveyed to people what her real abilities were. And to be fair, children's understanding, or certainly teenagers' understanding, or indeed adults' understanding of the uh, special qualities of oral literature, you know, the the ability to to tell uh, a sometimes complex tale uh, you know with that, uh, and depending on one's own memory i don't think that was people understood that quite clearly and i think this is coming to the fore and i think this exhibition helps to set that right very good and is there a sense that it's because that she had so many of these stories and legends and and the fact that then she's able to pass these on or was it that she was telling them so well that it was her own unique skills that uh, were so important as well what was the what was the magic there with these stories well certainly uh, uh, as a teller of tales she was exceptional uh, her ability to tell a tale, to hold an audience. Uh, it's no accident that she attracted so many uh, scholars who literally flocked to the Great Blasket Islands in the 1920s and 30s to listen to her. So she had mastery of the spoken word and she used imagery, she used symbolism in her tales and to some degree elements of the social reality, the world around her, you know, can be encountered in her stories. 
Lorcan, I was very struck by something that Katie said about how, you know, we have that image of Peg in her older age and we kind of almost read her life backwards from that point and that we miss out on these elements of her being a flirt, of being great fun, of, of this great life and energy and that part of the problem is in the way we read her life backwards from that later image. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, you have to remember, I mean, how, how Peg would have come to prominence would be, in most people's experience, was, you know, her, her autobiography being on the school curriculum so that there was, I mean, a barrier of comprehension and possibly this urban-rural divide as well in relation to that, but also, I suppose, a fairly narrowly focused picture that was presented in that the second part of her autobiography, which uh, which is Baha Fegsers, uh, which was published much later um, by her son Michal, um, rounds out the, the picture. And even even the physical representations of her, we in the Blasket Centre have a beautiful portrait of Peg done by Harry Kernoff, for example, which shows a very striking and, and beautiful woman. Um, you know, completely different picture than one would get from the the woman with the shawl, which which was also part of her. Uh, but but the descriptions I would have heard and our experience of Peg, I suppose, growing up here in in West Kerry and growing up in a Gaeltacht, I remember my dad telling me that you know he knew her at the end of her life, told me that she was a tremendous character, quite salty well able to tell a ribald tale uh, as well as something that might be more uh, devotional or, or whatever. She was also quite the romantic. Her, her description of seeing her future husband uh, as he was then uh, and this kind of love at first sight, uh, almost as, as she as is described in Bahfexers, um, gives a very different kind of a picture um, that she was quite the character. It's very interesting to note also from the other books that have been written from the island. Uh, Sean Fastamo Karna, for example, um, you know, wrote of of how attracted he was to her as a person, uh, how even as a young boy on the island that he loved to be in her company. Uh, she was famous for her, her uh, frightening the living daylights out of the children with her ghost tales. Um, somebody who was full of fun, as well as being an extremely devout Catholic. You know, they, they described some of the islanders and the kids in particular, you know, that if she was saying the rosary, that it would go on forever and that their knees would be sore from kneeling in her living room while she was doing that. So she had all these different aspects to her character as a person. And I think that her significance, I mean, there's various levels of significance of what she's written and what, I suppose, as part of the the Blasket canon, you could say. We've just done a, a major new exhibition here in the Blasket Centre, um, which covers, I suppose, the wider picture, both as literature and as social history. And where she sits in that, where there's a great deal of kind of cross-corroboration is of, I mean, they didn't have any of the distractions or forms of entertainment that we had. So the telling of stories, apart from being something that was obviously taken up by the visiting scholars, it was essentially a function central and normal in their daily lives. This was the means by which, for example, folk wisdom was transmitted. This was the means by which, say, 
local history was recounted. This is the means by which the ancient folk tales were passed on from generation to generation, as they had been. And we're just very fortunate at that series of, I suppose, happenstances of the Gaelic revival of the, the scholars that came and recorded a lot of these from Cormac O'Kyla onwards through Robin Flower and, of course, the enormous work that was done by Joseph O'Dolly and Kenneth Jackson and others. But that we have this record of the volume and quality and quality of expression uh, in her stories, which is quite remarkable in terms of its, I think, its command of the language in which she was obviously, uh, you know, steeped. Uh, and also, as both Katie and Christor have mentioned, just her ability as a, a teller of stories and the ability, the dramatic ability. I, I sometimes think if Peg lived in this contemporary age, you know, that she might have a, have a, a career in on stage or as a broadcaster, her, her communication ability uh, is something that was quite extraordinary. And there's a lot of focus in people's minds on this kind of dour adversity, um, which is described in Peg and this kind of shorthand that she has become a shorthand for a particular view of the Irish language or of Ireland. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm very glad to see that in in more recent years, through the work of Bo Alamquist and Padraig O'Haley, who have brought her stories into print uh, through the exhibition at Molly and, and uh, I hope what we do at the Blasket Centre as well, that people are beginning to see the significance of Peg and her other fellow Blasket uh, writers uh, in, in a very new context uh, whereby it's much more appreciated. It probably should never have been foisted on the teenagers of Ireland in the manner in which it was. And I think the fact that it that that happened, you know, reflects something of the ideology of the time. Yeah, it's almost as if it was the wrong book for that 16 to 18 year old age group and that uh, apart from the fact that it was maybe then imbued with extra negativity because of the the fact that it was it was compulsory, it just it just wasn't going to connect with that age group. I mean, it's extraordinary, and I, I meet a lot of visitors now who who access Peg or autobiography and other works in other languages and in English and who, like Katie mentioned earlier, have been inspired to have a relook to look at this as an adult, I suppose, um, is a completely different thing and also outside of the cloud of compulsion. And also there was a struggle in comprehension in many cases. It was different for us as kids living in the Gaeltacht who, who studied Peg when we were in national school, but at least it was in our, in our own language. There were all those barriers uh, to it at the time. But as I suppose the most pity about it is how she then gets tied up and you hear this kind of throwaway comment from people who had legitimately, you know, they had negative experiences and connotations and connotations about language and about compulsory Irish and everything else. Um, that 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 is a fact, uh, and and but I I think that we're coming to a much more rounded picture, and we're also getting to the heart of her qualities as a person, as well as 
you know, and there is this whole description. What she was describing was Ireland and Ireland not so long ago uh, in historical terms, you know, in the early years of the 20th century, uh, in, in the last hundred years. And I think p- people in 2022 find that so, so extraordinary and so extraordinarily distant, which says a lot about the distance we might have come. Well, tonight we are talking about Peg and her remarkable legacy. And we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be exploring her life, the moments of happiness and joy, as well as the darker uh, periods and times of sadness and trauma. So that's all coming up after the break. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. On News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of Peg. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Katie Mishler, who's part of the curatorial team for the Peg exhibition at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, Lorcan O'Caneda, the manager of the Blasket Centre, part of the OPW National Historic Properties, and Dr. Christor McCarthy, the director of the National Folklore Collection at UCD. Katie, it is a fascinating life. And I suppose given the, the connection with the Great Blasket Island, it's interesting that, of course, she wasn't born there. Uh, she only moved there when she, she married, I think, at the age of 19. So can you tell us about the life? She went into service at a young age. She could have gone to America. I think if the money had come through, she would have emigrated to the United States. So uh, the history would have been very different then if that had happened. Yeah, absolutely. Peg did live a fascinating life, I think. She was the sixth or seventh daughter of a farmer, a poor farmer. She would have gone to school until I think she was maybe 12, 13, 14. And then because there was some domestic strife at home, her brother's wife didn't really like Peg being there. Peg then went into service in Dingle. And when she was in Dingle, she was working in a shop and it was a shop, general store, pub, and also there was a farm attached to it as well. So she was doing a lot of domestic labor, a lot of very hard manual labor or agricultural labor. She also was looking after and helping to entertain the children who um, were part of that household as well. Um, It would have been more than a nine-to-five job. I think it would have been when she was awake, she would have been working pretty much all hours. Thankfully, there was an older woman in the house who did speak Irish, who was able to converse with Peg in Irish as well. So I think there were some good moments there. And I do think that she did find some semblance of a happy home there, but it wasn't an actual home. It was work for her. Then when she was 19, she did marry Patsy Flint, who was a Blasket Islander. I believe there were a few men that she was interested in marrying in Dunquin before that, but her father was unable to afford the dowry. And you are correct, actually. I think it is quite interesting about Peg. Um, She had wanted to go to America. And if she had, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't have this exhibition. We wouldn't be talking about it. A lot of this had to do with chance and fortune and precarity. And one thing you do see in Peg and throughout the different memoirs by Blasket Islanders is a lot does depend on fortune. There were moments where, and misfortune, I will say as well, you know, there was moments where there were shipwrecks that brought 
the Islanders, a lot of riches. Obviously, that was bringing somebody else misfortune. And Peg's life up to the point she came to the Blasket Islands did follow a similar path. So she had a friend named Koch who went to America and Koch was supposed to then earn the money for pay to send for Peg, and Peg was then supposed to come to America. But Koch ended up writing back to say that she had injured her hand and she was unable to do the work necessary to get that money. So if it weren't for Koch injuring her hand, we wouldn't even have this phenomenal repertoire of this incredible storyteller. And we also wouldn't have Peg, this, I guess, mythic figure that we have in Irish culture. And Katie, tell us about her husband. I think he was 12 years older than her. I've I've read different accounts or different versions of how it all came about that in one version, uh, Peg said when the match was arranged, that was the first time she'd ever seen him. But then I think in in a version that her son Michal did, uh, she had seen him from afar before and had had taken a liking to him. So there's kind of different accounts or versions of, of their relationship at the start. Yeah, and I think that's where we have Peg the Storyteller coming in, where it's obviously a much more dramatic version if she's saying that, um, you know, she didn't know who this person was and what this life she was entering into was. I mean, it's true. She hadn't been to the Blasket Islands before her marriage. So it is quite incredible to think that she was going to. I, I suppose there is a relationship between Dun Quinn and the Gale Talk community there and also the Blasket Islands. But it would have been a very different life than in a lot of ways. It would be much more remote. Um, she would have been much more isolated, particularly the women who didn't row back out to the mainland and into the island. So it would have been quite a different life than, in a lot of ways than what she was used to. I do like kind of the, you know, if we talk about Peg as a romantic and a dramatist and a great personality. I do like the idea that this man was kind of shrouded in mystery before she actually got a chance to meet him. And I wonder also, was there maybe an element that when she was telling the story to her son, she might have made it more romantic for him as well? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that is great about storytellers. And one thing that gets lost in an oral tradition when it is being put down into print is that storytellers are, it's it's a performance. It's something and it's not static. So it can change depending on the audience or the context as well. So I think we're, we're seeing perhaps... Peg's storytelling prowess in these different versions of her life. Lorcan, what was life like for her then on the islands and how much of a culture shock was it to go from Vickerstown and, and Dingle and so on to suddenly then experiencing life on the islands? You know, I think five of the ten children survived to to adulthood. Now, I suppose mortality rates were very difficult for people in, in, in those days in any case, but it does seem to have been a tougher life for her. Certainly, I think it's important to understand that life was exceptionally difficult on the mainland for small farmers, farming households, farming and fishing being the staples of life on the mainland as well as on the island. I saw a reference to her referring before she had gone to live in the island as the island as being, you know, somewhere where she perceived as a kind of a prison. I suppose because it had that three miles of sea between it and the mainland. So it was a change. 
uh, but I suppose not so much a fundamental change. There would have been a, a very high degree of connections between the island community and the mainland community. There was a lot of toing and froing when the weather permitted. But there's no doubt that she was very conscious and you know she she says it in one of her famous kind of statements just about that barrier that that stretch of water represented uh, that there was you know no no priest and no shop and they had very little access to say medical facilities uh, on the island but she would have gone into what seems to have been a very happy home uh, insofar as uh, she speaks very highly of her in-laws uh, and of and of her husband, indeed, in that that her mother-in-law in particular would have been living there, as would have her father-in-law. Uh, so it was quite quite crowded. There would have been a brother of her husband's living there, uh, and then she had her own family, and as you mentioned, quite a series of uh, miscarriages and losses. She lost one of her children, Siobhan, at the age of eight uh, to uh, measles. And none of this, I suppose, would be completely alien from life on the mainland. It's just that it was confined and it was difficult and there was an inherent challenge with living on an island with none of the services that we conceive of today in terms of electricity or running water or sanitation facilities or anything else and the fact that it demanded a very high degree of self-sufficiency for women in particular it was a very challenging life they were more isolated than the men insofar as their opportunities for travel to the mainland were, were a lot less uh, than, than than would have been the case for the men uh, for somebody who was very religious and lived in, in, a, in a very religious culture very limited access to that religion and the practice of that religion in a formal sense going to daily mass there was no church on the island and a, an endless routine of work uh, which would have involved for example something as practical as having to have the peat or the turf in from the mountain uh, keeping a fire going every day of the year because every single thing you did depended on it was all very very challenging but she seems particularly um you know when when she moved into middle age to have had taken more time uh, and a bit more leisure in terms of her storytelling. She was noted among young and old as being an, an extraordinarily accomplished uh, storyteller. So that that became a bigger part of her life than it would have been the life of, say, of, of, of some of the other women on the island. She also had a whole stream of visitors coming, visiting scholars, coming to visit her, to take down, to hear her stories. She had good command of English, and Robin Flower refers to this, that, but that was one of the things that attracted people to her, was the fact that she was able to explain some of what was going on in Irish in English to him, and he, he, he makes reference to that. So it was a tough and challenging life on an island, and then there were the attendant, I suppose, the tragedies that went with that, the death of, of her son, uh, Tomás in particular, who, who fell off a cliff. Uh, and there are very vivid descriptions of that, her absolute heartbreak, but also her enormous stoicism in relation to it and the sucker she did find in religion, that she describes this almost will or act of acceptance 
and of drawing on this spiritual uh, well that she, she she would have drawn from all her life in, in helping her to get over what was that tragedy, among others, the loss of, of obviously her infant children, and also then, I suppose, the equal loss of her surviving kids, all of them um, going, going to America, and most of them, you know, that she didn't see again, uh, apart from Michal, uh, who's been mentioned, uh, Michal O'Gaheen and Phila, a noted uh, writer and poet in his own right, who went for a short period, couldn't find work in America uh, during the Depression, uh, found the whole experience very alien and returned, and returned to be, among other things, her scribe and somebody who recorded her speech into into her autobiography and also contributed very significantly to the Folklore Commission in later years himself. And I suppose the very fact of it being an island and having a geographical territory with it, she seems to have assimilated extraordinarily well, been very well thought of uh, and becoming part of the fabric of that, living there as she did until 1942 when she returned in her old age to her home village from the island. Yeah, Christor, we get a real sense there of of you know the tragedies as well as the the high points and uh Lorcan mentioned the death of the son Tomas you know that was in 1920 when 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 he was killed I, I think her husband had been in bad health and he died soon afterwards she went to live with her blind brother-in-law Mihol then uh, as Lorcan said um, her son Mihol came back then in in later years to look after that there does seem to be a, a a bad period there where things were going wrong for her and the family. Notwithstanding the fact that she had moved to a new house, to a, a two-storey house by that stage, by 1920, the Congested Districts Board built several houses and she was offered one of these, a line of them uh, can be seen from the mainland. Uh, they stand out and they're above the existing village or the original village. There is a remarkable photograph taken by a Swedish folklore scholar, Carl Wilhelm von Sydow, father of the actor Max von Sydow. And it captures, he, he visited the island in 1920, uh, you know, at the height of the War of Independence. And he took a whole series of photographs, wonderful portraits of islanders. But he captures Peg with her daughter Nelly uh, seated next to her and clearly there is a very dark cloud hanging over her because this was probably the toughest period of her life. Uh, subsequently, in the 1920s, other photographs, she came through that period despite having, having lost children and seeing the remainder of her children, with the exception of Michal, her, her son, leaving and moving to uh, America, to Massachusetts. So a very, very difficult period, and, and that can be seen in the exhibition that particular photograph. And uh, Christore, talk to us then about how the the autobiography came about. I know people like Maureen Nikineda uh, visited the island to record her story. I think Maura then helped edit the the volume. Uh, talk to us about that lead up to its publication in 1936. Her autobiography, I suppose she was spurred on largely by Thomas O'Crihan, the, the island man, who was the most senior, he, he was the island historian uh, par excellence, I would imagine. And the arrival of scholars, uh, in Tomás's case, uh, Breno Kjallig, uh, a man from Dublin, uh, but also 
critically, scholars from abroad, uh, like Robin Flower, Kenneth Jackson, uh, encouraging islanders to write about their own lives and the uniqueness of their situation. And they inspired the islanders to write about themselves and present their worldview, if you like, in terms of their writing. So it didn't come out of nowhere. You know, there was an example already set by Tomaso Crehen and indeed other, other writers. We know uh, Maurice O'Sullivan, Maurice O'Sullivan, 20 years of growing, uh, is a wonderful, evocative story of, of life in the island. So there was very much a literary milieu around her and all it needed was the intervention of people from outside, like Maureen Ikenaid, to encourage her to write, to commit to, to writing her own story. There was a precedent, is, is what I'm saying, essentially. It was a very natural thing. There's a, a very funny cartoon produced, featured on the cover of the Dublin Opinion in the late 30s, making the point that if you stood on Dunmore Head, the nearest point from the mainland, and listened to the island and listened carefully, you could hear the scratching of nibs by uh, islanders writing. I mean, it's quite remarkable that it produced so many writers for such a small community. And by, we'll say, 1920, the island population had reached its its peak, its zenith, almost 200 people. And a substantial percentage of those were, were writing. The confidence to sit down and tell their story and to be able to say, well, you know, this will be recognised by others. And they were publishing in, in various Irish language uh, journals, such as in Clive Sullish, Lochran, and other, other sources. And that continued even after the island was evacuated and islanders moved to the mainland. And Christora, also from about 1942 on, she was also... Uh providing all of these wonderful stories to the Irish Folklore Commission. And I think Joseph O'Dolly collected 360 stories. Yes. In the region of 5,000 pages of carefully handwritten tales, legends, customs, traditions, etc., recorded from her, using both the, the headphone, this is a wax cylinder recording device, a dictation machine, effectively, uh, quite primitive, but effective. In other times, actually writing down quickly in shorthand exactly what she was saying. And the Irish Folklore Commission, which was set up in 1935, they approached this work in a very scientific, systematic way, instructing collectors to write down exactly what people said rather than summarising it or paraphrasing it in any way. So we have a remarkable legacy and archive, not only of Peg folklore, but of many other islanders, because the commission not only sent its own field workers to the island and, and spoke to islanders down the years. But it guided a lot of foreign scholars who were fascinated by the fact that here you have like a living laboratory of, of storytelling passed out of fashion in many other parts of industrialised Europe, but could still be witnessed and observed in full flow in the west of Ireland and the west of Scotland. Uh, Katie, the book the autobiography won awards uh, straight after publication and I think went on the school curriculum in 1962 and was there until 1995. What do you think was the value of the book and what does it tell us? I think that if we look at Peg, one thing that is out of all, you know, if we look at Thomas O'Crohan and we also look at Morris O'Sullivan's works, those are the 
two other kind of monumental works of Blasket Island literature. This is the one that is from a woman's perspective, and I think it probably is now the most famous one, probably because of its inclusion on the national school curriculum and all the baggage that comes with that. One thing that is really interesting to actually think about when you are looking at Peg, the book, is that Peg was actually a contemporary of James Joyce's, another stalwart of Irish literature. And yet they're coming from almost two completely different sides of Ireland. We have Joyce, the Dubliner, born in 1882, died in 1941, who was the eldest son of 10 children. And then we have Peg, born in 1873, died in 1958, the youngest daughter of a poor farmer who had several children as well. And their lives couldn't be any more different. You know, Joyce was educated in the best schools. He had the most opportunities. He was able to travel the world Peg had a much different life that dealt with a lot of um, domestic and manual labor, very hard work, a lot of misfortune as well. Um, Went to school but did not receive higher education, didn't have education throughout her life. And yet she still has something, I think, to tell us about Irish culture and Irish history and a way of life that was disappearing when the time that the folklore collection was collecting tales from her and other islanders, as well as in her own book and her own description of her way of life. It's an interesting inclusion to be on the school curriculum in the 1960s, a time of, you know, the swinging 60s, the sexual revolution, all these sorts of things happening. And it seems to be, I guess it could be perceived as being backwards, archaic, very alien to modern life in a lot of ways. I mean, she is telling the story of traditional culture, a folkloric culture, an oral culture, one that was being slowly eroded and was giving away to more modern culture, you know, a print culture, a culture of technology, culture of radio, television, these more modern forms of storytelling that we're more familiar with and versed in now. But I think that the value of Peg, of her autobiography, it is maintaining and it is a testament to this culture that is very important even you know there is probably there, there's definitely some snobbery attached to it that I think relates to the rural urban divide but it's also really important to think about the value of her storytelling and even the value of her autobiographical narrative it's interesting to think of it even next to James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, whereas he was off roaming around the liberties and visiting brothels and falling in and out with God and having these sorts of experiences that formed him as an artist. And Peg, we see her formation as an artist. We see her going to more traditional forms of entertainment. We see her learning stories from her father. She received a lot of stories from her father and sort of received a storytelling tradition from him specifically, we see her studying her craft. You know, um, this is something that she did have a phenomenal memory. You'd have to have a phenomenal memory to remember 375 stories and be able to tell them and recite them. But she also learned how to craft narratives, how to embellish narratives, these sorts of things. And I think that in her autobiography, it's, to use a phrase from our exhibition, it's the tip of the iceberg. It gives us insight into her development as an artist and her history, and it gives context 
to who she is as an artist in the same way that I would say Joyce's autobiographical novel gives insight into his way of writing as well. Very good. Well, we're going to take another quick ad break now when we come back. We'll explore what actually is in the exhibition, the new exhibition at Molly. We'll also assess the legacy of Peg. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back as we look at the life, work and legacy of PEG. I'm joined by Dr. Katie Mishler, Lorca Ono-Kaneda and Dr. Christor McCarthy. Uh, Katie, I'm curious to know how you tell the story of PEG in the exhibition. What is there for for people who want to, to find out more about PEG and this storytelling tradition? So at Molly, we try to approach our model of curation and exhibition development as a collaborative studio environment. So we always try to bring in different artists or different curators. We always try to also have different elements of photography, film, soundscapes, these sorts of things. So in this exhibition, we try to create an immersive world. We actually travel to the Blasket Islands. It's a very rocky, it's not barren, but you can see how it'd be difficult to grow things in a place that has such a rocky terrain. Um, And we try to capture that in moving image as well as photography. We also have created a soundscape of different sounds from the islands. So we recorded um, different bird songs. We recorded the ocean waves. We recorded also the seals on the beach. So we're trying to, from the outset, when you step into the exhibition, we're trying to evoke the feeling. We're trying to transport uh, visitors to the actual Blasket Islands. And then we're telling the story of Peg primarily through material that we've gathered from our collaborator in this exhibition, which is the National Folklore Collection. We do have a number of artifacts that we use to help tell this story. We have uh, some of the different materials from the field collectors like Joe Daly, who would have been probably the most important collector in relation to Peg. So we have his field diary where he would have recounted the day he met Peg Sayers. And the purpose of a field diary is primarily for the collector to say, you know, I went to this place, I talked to this person, I did this thing. And that corresponds to his field transcriptions, which is when he would have recorded Peg with an ediphone and then written down verbatim, word for word, what she said. So we have an example of those transcriptions where he would be asking her about fairy lore and ring forts. And um, I had somebody translate it for me. And in it, she's talking about how she suspects some of her neighbors might have some going-ons with the fairies as well. So that's really fascinating. We have some lovely artifacts as well. We have a holy relic of the Sacred Heart of Jesus that actually would have been in Peg's home in the Blasket Islands that was provided to us very graciously by Dr. Elishni Gwibna, who actually wrote our exhibition text. Elishni Gwibna herself is a writer in both Irish and in English. She's a folklorist, and her husband was also one of the most important collectors and publishers of Peg's work. That would be Dr. Bo Omquest. So we have that personal touch and relationship that we think is brought to the exhibition text as well. And in terms of kind of personal flourishes, we also 
also have Robin Flowers' photography book. So this would have been his own personal photographs that he would have taken of some of the islanders himself. So we have that on display. So we're trying to make it a very personal, kind of intimate look at not just Peg, but also Peg in relation to the collectors and the people that help bring her story to the greater world and also the other storytellers who are on the island. And we wouldn't have been able to do this without the really wonderful, gracious help of the National Folklore Collection of Christor and also the archivist there, Johnny Dillon. And so you're continuing this mission of rehabilitating and rescuing her from the narrow prejudice that has that has been over her for too long. Yeah, no, absolutely. We are trying to bring this story alive and we're trying to show the different dimensions of it. If you just approach Peg from the autobiography, as um, as Eilish says, and I believe this is a term she got from Bo Omquist, is the book or the literature is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more richness underneath that um, when you put Peg not just in context of the other storytellers on the island and this oral folkloric tradition, but also in relation to the really important folklore collectors who really brought her story to life as well. So we're trying to bring that more personal, intimate element and also some of the more fun and exciting sides of the story. We're trying to really bring that to the fore in the exhibition. And Lurkon, then if people want to follow in Peg's footsteps, they can go down to the Blasket Islands and maybe visit you at the Blasket Centre. Yes, indeed. And there's a lot of people who are making that pilgrimage serendipitous, I suppose, that uh, at the same time as Molly has put on this amazing exhibition in Dublin, that we have been reimagining our Blasket Centre over the last two years and it's just reopened, which is taking a, maybe a wider look at the entire canon of the literature and the context for that literature in terms of the, how they lived on the island, the place that uh, nature had in their lives, which was obviously completely integral in a whole series of multi multimedia exhibits. And then, of course, um, a visit to the island, I think, for just about anybody who, who visits there uh, is an extraordinary experience in itself. All in all, we're probably not quite on a campaign, but I think that what we are doing is, I suppose, trying to give voice and give a representation of a particular facet of Irish life and an important, both nationally and internationally, series of events and works of literature uh, and social history, which certainly the public, I think, are, are, are finding really thrilling to, to see and uh, to experience. And Lorcan, everyone deserves a second chance. And in this case, is it that Peg not only deserves a second chance, but uh, she deserves not to be blamed for the way her book was was used in the educational system and she she deserves to have a, a new look and perhaps it's going to be a first chance for people. I think you're quite right, Patrick, that Peg does um, richly deserve, I think, a different uh, look and a possibly a reconsideration. It's kind of part of our past. It's very relevant uh, to our present and also that significance actually increases as time passes and maybe uh, shaking up people's thinking a little. The story of Peg, it's its very much being told now for a 21st century audience and will continue to inspire and, and influence people well into this century. Yes, I think so. And, and for listeners, if they go on to our uh, digital platform, the virtual world, they can find at dukus.ie, they'll find examples of other storytellers. They'll find photographs of Peg uh, all of which that they can download and they get a, a wider sense of the, 
the, the broader context in which you know, Peg and her, her art uh, can be appreciated. Well, my thanks to my brilliant panel for bringing the story of Peg, the great storyteller, to life for us tonight. Dr. Katie Mishler, uh, part of that Peg exhibition at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, Lorcona Caneda of the Blasket Centre, and Dr. Christor McCarthy, the director of the National Folklore Collection at UCD. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. So great new shows coming up in the weeks ahead on everything from Irish to world history so make sure you join us every week we've been talking history good night